Our current series, Rhythm and Rules, is all about uh, encouraging each one of us to write a rule of life. And a rule of life, if you've been here for the last three weeks, we've said is like a trellis. It's, it's really a support structure for growth. That's what a trellis is, and, and that's what a rule of life is. And, and so we've been using this trellis-like visual Uh, which I drew the first week, and if you weren't here, you missed a treat. But we're using this trellis-like visual to kind of think about the various spiritual disciplines and areas of life that are often included in a personal rule of life. And I have been encouraging uh, each of us to actually put pen to paper. And, And I know some of you are starting to do this, but to actually put pen to paper and write down how you're going to build these essential practices into your kind of daily and weekly rhythm of living. Because what this is about, this series, is really creating a plan, a thoughtful and thought-out plan of action that sets down how we're going to incorporate these into our day-to-day lives and, and schedules. Now, I know for some people, that idea might sound a bit formulaic, a little forced. But remember, this is not about trying harder. This is not about trying to earn anything. It's about training wisely. Because we all recognize and accept that if we're going to, and going back to week one, if we're going to remain in Jesus and bear much fruit, if we're going to keep running this race, that has been marked out for each and every one of us. If we're going to work out, not work for, but work out our salvation, then we need to practice. We need to practice these God-given disciplines, holy habits, means of growth on a kind of regular intentional basis. Now, you see, what's really interesting is that we, we apply this kind of thinking to every other area of life. And so, for example, we know we've got to train to run a marathon or to get physically fit. We practice to play an instrument or to improve a skill. We study to discover more about certain subjects. So why not apply those kind of same principles to our spiritual growth and development? And therefore, put a kind of plan of action into place. And that's really what we've been thinking about. That's what a a rule of life, this kind of trellis, this support structure for growth is all about. Now, so far, we've looked at the first two root practices, prayer, and then last week, Sabbath. Tonight, we come to the third, sacred reading, which is really all about our daily or regular engagement with God's word. And so this, this, this is, we are talking about kind of our personal daily reading of Scripture. This, and, and David has quoted this, this God-breathed resource that is so useful for our teaching and for our correcting and for our rebuking and for our training. That's, that's what God's word says. This is a distinctive and a dynamic book or or collection of books 
that we believe has the ability and the potential to kind of transform and shape our very lives. And as we think about our own personal uh, Bible study habits, what I want to do tonight is I want to remind us of these seven images. Now, hopefully, they will be familiar to anybody who was here in January 2011 as we started our Essential Word series. So if you were there at the start of that, say, stick your hand in the air for me a moment. Right, so for, a, for quite a few, although for a vast majority, th- these may be new. And the point of reintroducing these images tonight is because I honestly believe our desire and commitment to engage with God's Word, with the Bible, on a daily or regular basis will be and is profoundly affected by how we see how we view this book. These seven images have the potential to alter our understanding of this and our approach to this. Plus, these seven images give us seven reasons why it is so important to engage with God's Word on a regular basis in personal study. Before we we consider these seven positive, good ways of seeing God's Word, let me mention one of the most unhelpful ways of seeing and describing the Bible, and and I have highlighted this before. A manual for life. The manufacturer's handbook. How many people are familiar with that description of the Bible? Yeah, quite a few. You see, for a start, I'm not sure it's a biblical image. I don't really find it anywhere. But here's my main problem with it. How many people read or have any desire to read the manual to their toaster or their TV or their car? Now, some people are kind of going, well, I do. Uh, (laughs) Now, we do maybe read them or refer to parts of them from time to time whenever something goes wrong. Or we maybe turn to to various manuals as points of reference. But how many of us would ever honestly sit down and think, must read a few chapters of that microwave manual? (laughs) Just doesn't happen. And that's because these sort of things are considered generally, because I mean, there's always the odd exception, sad person. But they are considered generally rather dull documents. They're important, yes, but they're not exactly inspiring. The term manual for anything does nothing for the vast majority of us. In fact, I'm convinced when it comes to God's Word, we need to shelve that description of it. It isn't helpful. But these seven are. And if we can see the Bible in these ways then it will influence our approach to it, our hunger for it, and our engagement with it. This is the the inspired, God-breathed Word of God. That that is the primary description of it. That's the key idea we need to embrace. But in Scripture, we also find these seven objects and images to describe God's Word or God's words. Seven things, if you like, 
that God's word is, is compared to. So what I want to do is I want to take each in turn, not in any particular order. I'm going to start by showing you the image, and then I'm just going to pause. Because what I want you to do is I want you to engage with this as much as possible. I'm just going to pause when I show you the image, and I want you to think, what are some of the ideas that come to my mind whenever I see this image? What thoughts does it kind of stimulate in me? So here's the first. Bread. Why bread? Why is the Bible, God's word, the words of God, described as an everyday food item? And maybe that's the answer because Jesus puts it like this in his dialogue with the devil. And Jesus was actually quoting from Deuteronomy whenever he, he, he spoke to the devil in these terms, when he said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what Jesus was saying is here, God's words are an essential ingredient for life, spiritual life. Without regular intake, without regular consumption of God's word, we will waste away spiritually. We need to be nourished. We need to be sustained. We need to be fed by every bread-like word that comes from the mouth of God. And that only happens when we feast, when we eat, when we consume. We become what we eat is a phrase that you kind of hear these days. It's a bit of a warning, a bit of a maxim. You become what you eat. But it's also true in spiritual terms. The spiritual food that we digest will help determine the person we become. God's word is bread. Why should we engage with it personally on a regular basis? Because it sustains us, it nourishes us, it builds us up, it feeds us. What's your diet been like this week? As you have fed on God's word. The second image, a mirror. Another everyday item. Most of us, assume all of us, use one of these most days to check our physical appearance. We see what needs sorted, what needs combed, what needs straightened, removed, tidied up, squeezed. Sorry. <laughs> but when you look in the mirror, that's, that's what a mirror's all about. You check before you walk out the door. And whenever you see what needs sorted, you, you, you attend to it or you do your best. You put it right. As right as it can be. Well, God's word is exactly like that. And so here's what James says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then he goes on. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, God's word, not forgetting what they have heard and doing it, they will be blessed 
in what they do. And so God's word, according to James, it's like a mirror. It, It reveals to us what is out of place. What kind of needs sorted? What needs attention? What needs fixed? What needs put right? And then it says, do something about it. Once you see yourself through this, in this, don't just walk away. Do something. Fix. God's word is like a mirror. Third image, possibly my favorite. A scalpel. Or maybe in certain translations, we're more familiar with this idea of it's being a double-edged sword. Such a powerful way of looking at Scripture. As you stare at that image, I'm sure there, there are different thoughts come to your mind. Sharp. It's incisive. It could be dangerous in the wrong hands. It's got a healing quality about it. Potentially lethal. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel. Cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. You see, God's word will, if we let it, It will cut us open. It will expose the real us. It will reveal our hidden desires, our mixed motives. But what is brilliant is just like a surgeon's scalpel, God's Word can perform intensive surgery in our spiritual lives. It's life-saving life-preserving surgery. If we let this, if we see it like this, not just a book, God's Word is like a surgeon's scalpel. Let me ask you again. How has it exposed and cut you open this week? Have, Have you allowed it to? As you've read it personally in the quiet place, Fourth image, very familiar one, torch, lamp, light. Something that brings light to darkness. Something that brightens up environments, that provides direction, offers guidance whenever the the way ahead seems kind of uncertain or obscured. This image comes from that great psalm all about the word of God. Psalm 119. Your word says the psalmist, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. God's word guides us, reveals the way ahead. Then the fifth image, maybe one that doesn't immediately come to many minds, fire. As you look at that, what what does that say to you? What does that communicate Heat, purifying, consuming, burning, destructive. It's a strong image. According to the great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, this is exactly what God's word is like. Is not my word like fire? 
declares the Lord. And the sixth image comes from the second half of that verse in Jeremiah, a hammer. I don't know if you've ever thought of of God's word as, as a hammer. Something used in the construction industry. Something used at home to repair, to break down, to nail things, to create, to alter, to smash. Jeremiah 23 verse 29 continues, And is my word not like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? God's word is so much more than a book or a collection of books. And how we see it and how we view it and how we perceive it will profoundly influence our approach to it. And then our final image, sword. Another familiar one taken from that brilliant section in Ephesians where where Paul is talking about the armor of God. And in amongst the kind of essential kit and equipment that Paul advises us to wear and to carry, he writes, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word's a weapon. It's a weapon for attack and defense. If we're going to survive this struggle, which is exactly how Paul describes the Christian life, if we're going to survive this struggle, then you're going to need to arm up. You need to take and you need to use God's word just like Jesus did as he did battle with the evil one. When he came and tempted Jesus, how did Jesus respond? How did Jesus, in a sense, fight back? By quoting scripture, by quoting God's word to the enemy. And so take a moment again. See the potential, sense the potential of of this book. And if we can see it as a hammer and a mirror and a scalpel and a sword and a torch and bread and and fire, plus if we can see it as the God-breathed, inspired word of God, then somehow it's got to, it should impact and affect our approach to it. As As I look back over the past week, How much have I kind of engaged with this beyond the preparation time for services? Because, like, I'm paid to do that. But beyond that, what's my engagement with this been like? If when I sit down and and I open its pages, I don't just see ink, but instead I see it as one of these things. And therefore, I I read it with fresh eyes, with fresh intention, with fresh determination, with fresh hope. If you want seven reasons, seven reasons why we should read Scripture, here they are. It nourishes, it reveals, it exposes, it fixes, it guides, it reveals, it constructs, it protects. For those who are taking notes, I will say it one more time. It nourishes, it reveals, it exposes, it fixes, it guides, it refines, it constructs, it protects. Seven reasons why we need to be engaged in sacred reading and why we need, I want to suggest, to write it into our rule of life so that it becomes something we intentionally do. Nearly done. Five past, are you okay, Tim? Five past eight. Just want to take it a little bit further. Because what I want to just finish with is this whole idea 
And I, and I do think it, we're kind of losing this art. The whole idea, the whole discipline, the holy, holy habit of biblical meditation. Because it's not just how we see Scripture that, 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 that informs and is important, but it's how we use it. And meditation is one of the key ways. Now, I know it's a slightly loaded word because it means different things to different people and there are some forms of kind of meditation being practiced and promoted today and, and, and we, some people want to kind of steer a mile away from it. And so whenever you hear the word meditation, most people then think of kind of, is that not like some Eastern practice like TM? But biblical meditation is very different and, and is, is absolutely earthed in here. It requires no secret knowledge, no mantras, no mental gymnastics. There's no attempt because so much of what meditation is really all about is empty in the mind. That's not what it's about when it comes to biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is about filling the mind with Scripture and with truth, God's truth. And whenever the Bible kind of talks about this whole idea, this practice of meditation, it uses a few different words. And, and we come across it in lots of places. I think it's over 60 times. And here's two very familiar passages. Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law, God's word, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And in that great psalm, the very first psalm, blessed is the one, blessed is the one who meditates on God's word day and night. And to meditate on scripture means that we take time and we contemplate and we reflect and we ponder and we, we ruminate on God's word. It's about dwelling in a text. It's about living in a text. Not simply reading it and then moving on, but pausing to internalize, to personalize what we've been reading so that the truth and the content of what we've been reading actually starts affecting our attitude and our thoughts and our actions. The goal of meditation on the Word is not to get as much Scripture as possible, but to go deeper so that its truth moves from our heads to our hearts, from study to prayer. But it takes time to meditate on Scripture. It requires intention. It requires discipline. This will not just happen. We all know that. That's why it's so important if you're going to write a rule of life that we include how we're going to meditate on Scripture is part of that rule of life. Let me read you this quote. Meditation upon God's Word is fast becoming a lost art among many Christian people. This holy exercise of pondering over the Word, chewing it as an animal chews its cud to get its sweetness and nutritive virtue into the heart and life takes time which ill fits into the speed of our modern age. Today, most Christians' devotions are too hurried, their lives too rushed. What, what's fascinating about that quote is it was actually said in the 1950s. Biblical meditation is a lost art. But I want to suggest to you it's, it's a critical aspect in what it means to train wisely. And therefore, it's a core practice. It's one of those root practices that kind of needs to be written into our rhythm of life. And so here, as I finish, is an idea for the next seven days of Lent, if you want to use it in that way. Take 
one of these verses each day for the next week. And, and these are the verses that we've just looked at about those seven images. Take one of those verses each day. Read it slowly. Allow every word to sink deep. Ruminate on the text. All of these animals are ruminant animals. Let's make sure you're still awake. What, what is kind of unique about these kind of animals? What is it about ruminant animals that, that is very... Stomachs, yeah. How many compartments do they have in their stomachs? Anyone know? Four. Very impressive. The first of which is known as the rumen. And the way a ruminant animal digests its food is fascinating and disgusting. So what it does is it bolts... This is, I, I know nothing, but I read a lot. It bolts its food down really quickly. And then what does it do? Go on, say it regurgitates it. It's a great word. Regurgitates it back into its mouth. And then it does that again. And it does it a number of times. And this regurgitation process means that the food is thoroughly digested, causing it to be absorbed into the animal's bloodstream where it becomes part of their life. Rumination, meditation are parallel words. And whenever we take a kind of verse or a phrase from Scripture and meditate on it and dwell on it and chew it over, we allow it to be absorbed into our spiritual bloodstream. And it becomes part of us. I love that idea. And so when it comes to meditation, select a piece of Scripture. I've given you seven for the next seven days. Chew on it. Ruminate on it. Listen to it carefully. Write it out. Learn it. Memorize it. Pray it. Use it as a springboard for prayer. And then live it. One more final quote. And I do encourage you to, to kind of hope you will go away from tonight. You will maybe see, if you haven't come across those seven images before, you'll see God's word in a different light. You'll see seven reasons why sacred reading on a personal basis is so important. And you'll go away and you'll start meditating on aspects of Scripture. And you'll write that rhythm into your rule of life that many of you are forming during this series. One more quote. The Bible was given to us by God to be read and meditated on. An unread Bible is like food that is refused an unopened love letter, a buried sword, a road map not studied, a gold mine not worked.